Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Wednesday, Canada Day. Hope you're having a good one so far. Coming up on the program, we're going to talk more about distancing when it comes to flights and people being a little concerned, showing some concern. What do you do if you've already bought a ticket or you were planning on flying and maybe you're now a bit apprehensive. We're going to talk about that coming up this half hour. Also on the program today, switching NAFTA for the new trade agreement, what that means for Canada. And we're going to talk sport fishing a little later on in the show. A rally is being planned in Vancouver in the coming days. As sports fishermen say, the DFO is making poor choices and decisions not based on science. But first, we take a look at what is happening in Hong Kong. And Joanna Chu joins me on the line now, a journalist with the Toronto Star. She's based in Vancouver. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You wrote a very interesting and pretty heartbreaking piece about the future and why you fear uh, that your children and maybe even you might never again see the Hong Kong that you've grown to love. Uh, Talk a little bit, if you can, about what prompted you or what specifically led to you writing that piece. Yeah, so today's Canada Day, which is, you know, a day of celebration for Canada, but for many people with connections to Hong Kong, who've lived there, worked there, because it's such a cosmopolitan place that's pretty special to a lot of people. Um, it's a sad day because uh, July 1st um, is a day of protest every year for Hong Kong. It's when uh, the British returned the city to Chinese rule under an agreement that the city should have a high level of autonomy and retain its rule of law system for at least 50 years. And we've seen with the national security law, uh, very controversial, that Beijing pushed through really quickly, uh, came into effect yesterday, that it seems like um, the promises that were made in 97 uh, were broken. So basically with this law, people, lawyers say that the whole one country, two systems agreement has basically been broken and Hong Kongers are subject more and more to the legal system and the justice system uh, of mainland China. Um, So you can see how that could be concerning to a lot of people with awareness of what the court system and the political system is like in Beijing. Uh, We have two Canadians, Michael Kovic and Michael Faber, arrested, uh, detained, facing serious charges in China, and Beijing has admitted that it's retaliation for um, the Vancouver arrest of Meng Wanzhou. So a lot of Hong Kongers, people who live in Hong Kong and people actually who have never, uh, who actually don't live in Hong Kong but have said anything that could be seen as critical of China, um, they could get arrested or they could get in trouble if they ever travel to Hong Kong. So it's a very wide-ranging law that um, in in it, it, it stipulates that it's not only ap- applicable to Hong Kong citizens, it's, it's anyone. Which I found really interesting in the piece, and you've written about uh, when you were there, when you were reporting in China in 2018, mm-hmm. and and raised uh, raised the point as well that even as a Canadian, you could still be in danger and get in uh, and be arrested or or worse if you were traveling there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even back then, um, five ten years ago. China was was acting in a way where it seemed like it was really clearly signaling that they don't respect the foreign citizenships of people who were born in Hong Kong or who have the parents who were born in Hong Kong. Um, They have this attitude where anyone who has this connection to China is Chinese, is a Chinese citizen. Um, So I went around reporting for foreign media in, in China, often on very sensitive political and human rights issues. And I often felt 
um, insecure and worried. I actually had to give up my Hong Kong passport in order to work as a journalist in China because Beijing doesn't allow, um, it doesn't recognize dual citizenship. They wouldn't have recognized my Canadian identity at all if I hadn't actually went through the legal process of renouncing my Hong Kong citizenship, which was, you know, quite a hard choice to make, um, having been born there and family there and really connected to Hong Kong. Um, but I was I wrote about how I was roughed up outside a courthouse um, in a city near Beijing, just walking down the sidewalk. A group of men surrounded me without identifying themselves as police, um, pushing me and just detaining me for, for no reason. Um, I was only let go when um, an editor got on the phone, was speaking English with me, and I showed my foreign press credentials. So I wrote about how shaken I was at that point. That was a few years ago. And now with the national security law, it's just become more legitimate um, as far as it's written in law that these really vague acts, including um, collusion of foreign forces, what does that mean? Um, so it's, I think people say it's written in a way that's quite vague, so it can kind of cast a shadow over people's decisions, whether to say something that might be critical of Beijing, um, because they don't know how it will apply to Right. Do you think Canada has done enough or, or is doing enough when it comes to calling out China and to say to, to calling them out about the national security law? Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague in Ottawa did a piece about just the extent to what the foreign minister said. Um, basically, he just said he expressed concern about the law. And that was it. Um, Canada did not say how it would protest the law or how it would protect the interests of the 300,000 Canadians who actually live in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong is such a cosmopolitan place. People go back and forth between Hong Kong and Canada. Lots of expats there who are Canadian. Um, So the people I've spoken to in Hong Kong feel that they're not getting much clarity from Canada about how, if at all, Canada would be able to protect them if they become... um, kind of subject to the law's implications. Right. And when we're, and we're talking about that, it could be, or I mean, could it be something as small as uh, things that we take for granted here in speaking out against the government, if you disagree? Mm-hmm. So um, just overnight in Hong Kong, which was daytime, there were protests on the street and police just were out in a full force. And they actually had a new banner that says, uh, you're breaking uh, the national security law. So they already made their first arrest for people for waving a flag, um, like an old Hong Kong flag, which has become a symbol of um, support for Hong Kong independence. People were arrested for that. And the maximum sentence under the law now is life in prison. So it's very serious. And as a journalist, I see the way my colleagues are being treated in Hong Kong. Um, One photographer or videographer was hit by a water cannon just trying to uh, take footage. Mm-hmm. So it seems quite dramatic, the scenes there right now. It, it's become kind of an immediate application of the law in, in already a pretty um, heavy-handed way. People are getting corralled. Like, just pedestrians walking down the sidewalk, there, was, there are videos of them being kind of corralled and saying that they're gathering illegally. So it's stuff Canadian take, um, perhaps... Um, uh, take for granted, we are allowed to protest, we're allowed to protest and criticize our government, but people in Hong Kong, no matter what their nationality, 
um, in some ways, a lot of that has become criminal. Thanks for being with us. It is Canada Day, so we thought we would have a bit of a Canadian flair to the show today. Uh, Speaking of that, if you're traveling around Canada, as many people still are, or at least are planning to in the coming weeks and months, uh, you've likely heard the news that starting today, passengers on WestJet and Air Canada will not be spaced apart. Airlines are going to again be offering the middle seats for sale. Those were the seats that were blocked off as they tried to distance passengers because of COVID-19. So what happens if you've already purchased a ticket or you're nervous about flying in that type of configuration? Well, let's talk about that. And joining us is Gabor Lukacs, an air passenger rights advocate. Gabor, thanks so much for being with us today. Good afternoon and happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you as well. I'm guessing you're getting a lot of questions about this. It is starting up today. So what do you tell people as far as if you've booked a ticket on a flight, you booked it knowing or being feeling a bit reassured that the seat beside you was going to be empty, now finding out that it likely won't be, what are the rights of a passenger in that predicament? I would say my first advice to passengers is don't travel, don't fly in this situation. It's not worth it. Financially, because this is a material change to the services to be delivered, you are entitled to a refund as a matter of contract law. You will have to fight hard for that right because we are living in a world where the airlines in Canada are disobeying systematically the law. They have stolen the money of passengers whose flights were canceled altogether. So I uh, don't see them rushing to obey the law now all of a sudden about this, where it is technically not a cancellation, only a material change to the services being offered. Was there anything, do you think, then, when those tickets were sold, or if, or if you purchased a ticket under, uh, under knowing that the flights, the airlines at that point, were doing physical distancing, do, do you think would there have been any fine print or a disclaimer saying that that was subject to change? Uh, I haven't seen those uh, ads. Generally, with those fine prints, there is always a grain of salt because if you advertise something in, you know, 24-point fonts that we are provide social distancing and then you have a two-point font saying that it's subject to change, the court is going to look at what is realistic. How likely is it that the consumer will notice the fine print in the face of the large font and the advertising that has going out there? It will be ultimately measured for the court to decide, but there's a more practical aspect here, which is, is it safe? And the answer is, as far as I understand from experts, it's not safe. I'm just right now um, seeing here latest news, possible coronavirus exposure on registered flight from Toronto to Halifax. I have also seen recent news about coronavirus possible exposure in recent flights, um, I believe, between Winnipeg and other uh, cities. So uh, we are going to see more of this and Putting people so close to each other is not safe. We have just heard on Monday the BC top health officials expressing their concerns, rightly so, about these arrangements. Which is, I think, probably confusing for a lot of people as well, because you're right, we've got the stories out today of those flights where there was the possible exposure. Officials saying the risk is still quite low, but they put those numbers out there, the row numbers in the seats of people who might have been sitting next to somebody. But then we're also hearing from the airlines saying, well, wait a minute, uh, we people are protected by the back of the seat, the air is refreshed on a regular basis, and if everyone wears masks properly, the risk is very, very low, and that's kind of how they're justifying going ahead saying we can now fill these flights again 
the airlines can say whatever they want, but I want to hear from the travel uh, professionals about what they have to say about it. But uh, sorry, about healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals have been expressing concern. Uh, the the back of the seat can help with the passenger next to you. I'm not sure how much, uh, but with someone who is sitting right next to you, shoulder to shoulder, there is nothing separating between you and the next person. You know, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was watching a Supreme Court hearing in Israel. I also speak Hebrew, so it was an interesting case. And the Supreme Court judges there in the courtroom had actual plexiglasses between each judge. So (laughs) if they understand that you have to have that kind of social distancing, if here in Canada we are being told that you have to do physical distancing even when you are outside, I fail to see the rational scientific basis for what the airlines are saying. If they have some research, they should put it on the table, allow the scientific community to examine it, to debate it. And ultimately, obviously, I do defer to experts such as uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry from British Columbia, who is very knowledgeable. She has shown her expertise and her amazing management of the pandemic throughout British Columbia. And I'm not hearing her saying, thumbs up, it's all safe. Well, I heard her saying it, that she's concerned, and therefore I'm concerned. So what would you say, like you said off the top, it's not as though the airlines are just going to freely open up the cash registers and say, here's your money back. So what would you suggest if a passenger is booked on one of these flights coming up, they now really don't want to go? I guess you could pay the fee and and rebook, but then there's no guarantee as well. You're going to, to not have somebody beside you. What should a passenger do? I would say a passenger should demand a refund. And once refused, should proceed to a chargeback on their credit card because of services not as described. That may take some process, but ultimately, if the credit card company is also being unhelpful to you, just claw back the money from your next credit card bill. Make the credit card bill go after the airline and tell your credit card, I'm not paying it because I didn't receive the services and you sort it out with the airline. And is that, do you think that's a better course of action than continuing the fight with the airline directly? Fighting with the airline may be difficult because then you are running after the money that they have. Your credit card company, if they refuse to give you back your money after you have followed all the proper steps under, for example, the British Columbia legislation for chargeback, Section 52 of the Act, then they are in a bad position because you claw back the money. So you, in the next bill, you, you take back the chunk of money which was improperly charged to you. You tell the credit card company, if you don't like it, take me to court. And if the credit card company takes you to court, then you can show, well, I followed all the steps and they're still refusing to acknowledge the, the chargeback. Do you think it's it's a this is a situation where there is a role for government to step in and mandate something? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the British Columbia provincial government is doing everything in their power, bearing in mind the respect they have to show for uh, jurisdictional boundaries. They cannot regulate floods. Uh, but certainly the, their comments were very helpful. And what I would like to see the federal government do is step in. Transport Canada already has recommendations for physical distancing on board. They should turn those recommendations into binding regulations. They have all the powers to do so. And I hope that eventually the public will force the government to do so because the public is not going to accept it. I I encourage everyone who is in this situation to protest. Call your MP, tell them that this is not right. We are seeing already cases where people are being infected 
uh, and they have been on, on, on board a flight. We don't know whether they got it on the flight or not. But when we have that kind of reality, then if, if we want to have any semblance of airline industry in Canada, we have to make it as safe as possible, even if it may mean it costs more. And we have to make it as reliable as possible, which, of course, includes mandatory refunds. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon, Canada Day. Hope you're having a good day so far. We're going to take a look now at a story that's had more than a few twists and turns. And the latest now is that BC's Officer of the Police Complaint Commissioner has launched an investigation into allegations of misconduct in connection with the Delta Police Department's handling of a case involving the wife of the Chief of Police in Delta, Constable Chief Constable Neil Dubord. The municipal Police Watchdog says it learned of the June 6th incident through media reports. It also got one misconduct complaint about the incident. And after reviewing the complaint and getting some more information from the Delta Police Department, the commissioner has deemed the complaint admissible and has assigned the Vancouver Police Department to carry out an external disciplinary investigation. And if you're still following along, this is all to do with Kieran Sadu, who is the woman who spoke out after she says she climbed the rocks in front of a home to get away from a rising tide at Centennial Beach and says when she touched a fence, that is when she alleges that Chief Constable Neil Duvord's wife, Lorraine, yelled at her, called her names and sprayed her in the face with a hose. So that brings us up to date on what's happening with the case. Let's bring in Cash Heed, former public safety minister and former uh, former West Vancouver police chief, to talk a little bit more about the handling of this. Cash Heed, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. My pleasure. I normally wouldn't do that long of an intro, but this case just has so many moving parts right now. Uh, But I want to talk to you about the fact that the police complaint commissioner is looking at this now. Do you think that's the right move? Absolutely. I, I, there's some troubling aspects of this, and with the uh, oversight body now looking into this, I think we may get some answers. Simply the most troubling one is the delay of the public being aware of this occurred and the delay of an outside agency, number one, to do the criminal investigation, number two, to do the oversight to ensure that there are no public trust issues uh, with respect to what has taken place. And the, the other element is it is a service and policy within that uh, police department, and that's under the auspices of the, of the Delta Police Board. So if we were talking about a case, though, that, say, wasn't involving the police chief's wife, somebody gets sprayed or alleges that they were sprayed with a hose when they touched someone's fence, would that automatically launch a criminal investigation? Um, Well, the police officer has the discretion when they actually attend those particular scenes to see whether or not there is sufficient evidence to pursue an investigation, and secondly, whether there's going to be a prima facie case, but usually we leave that up to Crown to decide on that. But an aspect that just came to light was uh, the mayor of Delta's uh, response to a question during that virtual police board meeting, where in fact he said that the rocks which uh, the alleged victim climbed is on public property. So, again, when you take into account what occurred, and certainly the officers responding to this and the officers within the police department should have known, given the fact that it's the chief of police's spouse, that there had to be uh, absolutely a black and white response to this particular issue. There is no discretion. There is no gray area. 
Right. So, so that's kind of my, my question is that it, it is different in that if, if this was just two citizens with no links, neither had a link to the police department, the police show up, they say, yeah, if this is true, what you've alleged to have done, that was a really jerk move. That was a jerk thing to say to somebody. Let's, let's put this to rest. Nobody was hurt. Uh, let's move on. But because it was involving the spouse of the police chief, more needs to be done. Absolutely. And that's why we're into this chaotic time here that's going to be uh, prolonged for a period of time, having an outside agency do the criminal and, of course, the oversight agency and then the Vancouver Police Department doing it on behalf of the oversight agency. And the the issue then, so what happens if, like you said, that delay, because it sounds like, and again, this is all being investigated and looked at, but from all of the information we know at this point, it sounds like it was something that maybe the police department in Delta thought, okay, this, this, this is, this doesn't look good. Uh, Lorraine, issue an apology, chief, distance yourself from this and let's put it to rest. But that delay has people questioning if there was an attempt maybe at a cover up. Exactly, and I think that's what we have to uncover with the uh, the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner's uh, investigation where they've given it to the Vancouver Police. That needs to be addressed because some of the rhetoric that is coming out with media releases is a little concerning, and I can see through that given the fact that I was part of this process for such a, a period of time. Even the board's release that came out last Saturday after the fact, you could see they're trying to get ahead of this particular issue on the service and policy to make sure that their procedures with in the police department when it's someone that's so close to the chief are actually uh, proper procedures to ensure there's no biases or appears to be a bias in the investigation. Is it is it illegal to if somebody and and I get what you said and we it was good to get the clarification that the rocks themselves are on public property, but the minute she touched the fence, she was touching private property. Is it is it a crime to spray somebody with a hose? If they do that? Yes, absolutely. It's a crime, uh, whether you spit on someone, you spray them with a hose, when in fact you have a victim that apparently wants to pursue an assault investigation. I think it's incumbent upon the police to do that investigation, whether it was the chief's wife or not. Okay. And and the fact that, that that delay as well, because one of the questions is, even if people don't think this was a huge deal, the question is, if you are going to cover this up, what else are you going to cover up? And that's troubling. In, in, in the day and age we're in right now with the accountability factor being questioned with our police agencies, not only uh, throughout North America, but certainly here in Canada, and when you have an issue like this, which really uh, the public trust is, is weaning as far as police agencies goes and their credibility, and you got to remember the, the purpose under the BC Police Act and the OPCC is to build and maintain the public's confidence in the police and that they can actually police themselves. So this is, a, you know, a juncture right now where, in fact, we're going to be asking a lot of questions. I think the public has a right to know. We need to be more transparent. We need to be more accountable in the procedures we have, not only on criminal investigation, but certainly on police accountability investigations. Well, and certainly that's been a huge question lately. In this particular case, is it strange at all that it originally so starts with Delta, Surrey Police brought in as far as the criminal investigation, and then Vancouver Police now to look at... Uh, at uh, how the um, the external disciplinary investigation, it just seems like there are a lot of resources brought in for this. 
a lot of resources at taxpayers' money. And, uh, you know, this, again, we have to question uh, whether a different type of response from Delta initially would have saved all that we're going through right now. And, and certainly, you know, sitting here as an armchair quarterback, I can tell you right now, had there been a different response, you and I probably would not be talking to this. And had Delta been more transparent on what actually happened, not waiting two weeks before uh, there's an issue of advising the public of what occurred, is a little concerning. And I think we, we've had this before, uh, and we seem to be experiencing it again. But at the end of the day, this is of a, a, a substantial cost to the tax taxpayer who has to fund all of these uh, particular issues that are being investigated. No, exactly. So what do you think, what should Delta have done right out of the gate the minute that this person that, uh, that claims that she was sprayed with the hose, the minute she came forward? Well, you know, again, sitting from my position now and having hindsight, calling in another agency to investigate it uh, right then and there. And I think that's what you'll see around the service and policy side of it from the board. We're ensuring that they have policies when it's that close that there's another agency called in at the outset and uh, that there's more transparency. And, and, and you know, I, I may be going a bit uh, far, but I'm going to uh, tell you that we should be advising the public that this occurred because that uh, chief of police is in a high position where we require public trust, especially in the uh, community of Delta. All right, uh, Cash, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, though, and to talk a bit more about this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this Canada Day. You might have noticed a theme. Yes, we are featuring all Canadian musicians today as we celebrate, although it looks a little different, I know, for a lot of people, celebrating Canada Day. On that note, we are going to talk about the new trade agreement that goes into place, taking over where NAFTA left off. And joining me is Carlo Day, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. Thank you so much for being with us, for joining us today. Hey, Jim. Always a pleasure. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of this deal, saying Canada didn't get the best deal it possibly could. What are your thoughts on what has changed and what we now have? You have to define, you know, best deal and the conditions. This was extremely unusual. Usually you negotiate trade agreements for improvements, open new markets, uh, improve an old agreement. We did that with North American trade five years ago with the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Mexico, Canada, the U.S., plus other countries. But with the three NAFTA countries, it essentially was an updating of the NAFTA agreement. When Donald Trump tore that up and said, win-win trade doesn't work, I need, I win, you lose trade, we knew we were in trouble. And it was always a matter of limiting our losses, making the best of a bad situation. Given those circumstances, we didn't do too badly. Uh, so where do you think, I know there's been a, a lot of talk about, say, the automotive industry. Where do you think, or what industries do you think are going to see big changes or are going to see some negative consequences from this? Well, certainly automotive. You, you've nailed it right on the head. The independent modeling, uh, economic modeling of the impact of this agreement clearly shows net welfare and GDP losses for all three countries. In Canada, we take about a 0.4% hit. The U.S. has, I think, under a 1% hit. But the losses largely stem from new, more complex rules on rules of origin for automobiles. Uh, what constitutes made in North America? How much content do you need? You need so much of the labor to may be paid $16 an hour. How the heck do you figure that out? 
those things raise costs and certainly will impose new limits. But for the vast majority of everyone else who trades, very little, if any, change. I call this the Seinfeld Agreement, an agreement about nothing. (laughs) Uh, Who's policing it then? When we talk about, say, if we keep using the automotive industry as an example, and like you said, there are these formulas on what what needs to be made in North America and and what what actually what that means. Who is going to be policing it and making sure that there's compliance with the deal? So that's a great question. On issues like rules of origin, each country uh, establishes uh, the, the, the content requirements, and we agree upon them. Canada and Mexico have done this. The Americans finished theirs, I think, eight hours ago, 12 hours ago. I'm, I'm being slightly facetious, but the Americans really did wait till the very last minute to clarify all their rules, not necessarily for all those, but for other things. On labor, Uh, the new labor provisions, enforcement has been an extremely touchy issue between the U.S. and Mexico. And we're, despite what's being said, I think we're going to have to wait and see um, how enforcement of that actually plays out. Where do you think then consumers will see the biggest difference or the biggest changes? I don't see consumers will see any changes. Uh, The Big issues, uh, granting access to U.S. dairy producers uh, to the Canadian market. You know, that access is still to some degree controlled by the Canadian dairy industry. And as they've done with the European Union agreement, I expect them to drag their feet and finagle around the edges to try and limit that. Um, So that's one area you could expect to see lower prices, but I don't see that materializing. Really, consumers aren't going to see changes. Businesses that use the agreement, though, need to watch out. There are new rules for certifying that they comply with rules of origin and other things. And any business using the agreement really needs to talk to a customs broker or to a lawyer if they plan to continue using it to make sure that they're still um, they're still okay. And where do you think this leaves us as far as relations between Canada and the United States? When we look back, I mean, this is happening in the midst of a pandemic. When we look back, it wasn't that long ago that the president of the United States was talking about 3M, telling them not to ship N95 masks to Canada. Uh, Where do you think this we stand now as far as this agreement and, and our relationship? Unfortunately, we stand pretty much where we stood before and while this is going on. The agreement offers some protection to the auto sector for things like national security tariffs. Uh, We saw the president impose those on steel and aluminum. He also imposed them on automobiles. And there are several other investigations, uranium and other things, where the president is gaining the power to impose similar tariffs. So the agreement protects the auto industry. We get a million cars before the U.S. will slot national security arrangements. But pretty much every other sector of the Canadian economy is still exposed to the threat of those national security tariffs. Or worse, what happened to Mexico last May when we woke up one morning and the U.S. president said he was going to slap a 5% tariff on every single thing crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, that threat remains for businesses. The oil industry has some protection because Congress changed the national security tariff law in 1980. But 
pretty much every other sector of the Canadian economy is right where we were before. No protection from unilateral actions and tweets in the middle of the night. Mm. Uh, so would you say, is it a safe uh, th- conclusion to say that our other trade agreements are better deals for Canada than this one? Yes, in the sense of an objective look at the rules and the political climates in the countries that have signed them. You know, surprises like national security tariffs uh, aren't really there. Certainly, the U.S. is still the fattest, richest, and easiest market around. But it's gotten a little less easy for Canadians. And our other markets, like Japan, under the Trans-Pacific Agreement or Europe, have gotten a bit better. You finally have a hard business reason as opposed to a political reason uh, for countries to look to, uh, to diversify trade. All right, Carlo, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Joe. Well, taking a look at what has been happening today in Seattle, police there have moved in and cleared out protesters from what is being known as the autonomous zone. They had these big guns and that was already enough. They have these big guns. I don't know if they shoot fireworks or or, or soap or bubbles. I don't know, but it was a big gun. They all have big guns. They're all bigger than me. They all have sticks and they all look ready to fight. They have masks on to fight me. That was one of the protesters speaking earlier today. Let's head to Seattle now. And Nicole Jennings is a reporter with Cairo Radio and joins me to talk a bit more about how things have unfolded. Nicole, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, What's been happening there? What have you been seeing? Well, I just got let into the area that was formerly known as the CHOP, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. They've just let media in. It was roped off for a while. Uh, There is a lot of cleanup going on. You can probably hear in the background a lot of dump trucks driving around. They've been lifting up the barricades that were here that um, first police put up uh, when there were several nights of conflict and protests. And then the protesters have been using the barricades to sort of block off the CHOP area. But those are now being taken away. City crews are in here cleaning up graffiti, taking down the big pieces of um, plywood and, and such that were blocking off the East Precinct building. So definitely is obvious that police and city staffers are moving back in and um, the entire area, the entire six blocks are blocked off by police right now. Huge police presence. Um, media has been let in and then anyone who lives here or has business here is let in. But otherwise, it's closed off to the public. Uh, we know things, uh, the violence had erupted in this zone, and it, then the mayor, uh, Jenny Durkin, issued an emergency order uh, declaring, declaring that it, it was an unlawful assembly. Was there one particular incident that led to that action from the mayor that you know of, or what was it that finally uh, saw this action? Well, there were four shootings within the last 10 days or so. There was just a fourth one um, the other night, and that one um, unfortunately resulted in the death of a teenager. Um, so the shootings have resulted in two deaths, one of a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old, I believe, and um, three other people were wounded. So the, um, it does appear that Cal Anderson Park, which is a, a three-block or so-sized park that's located within the CHOP zone, um, had been sort of a target for violence at night. I know historically it, Cal Anderson Park has always kind of been a target for violence, from what I've heard from Capitol Hill residents, but that seems to have really increased in the last few weeks. I'm um, not exactly sure why that is. I have some records requests out kind of waiting to hear if it was gang, acti- gang activity or, or what exactly. But it just seems to be that, you know, the, just the surge of so many people coming into the area, perhaps 
um, had some sort of connection to, um, you know, maybe someone who, who had a beef with a couple of people who were in this area. Not, not totally sure yet, but um, certainly increase in shootings. And I believe that's what, what led the city to finally make the call to come in here. And from where you are now that uh, reporters, uh, the media has been let in, what does it look like? Um, it just looks, I mean, I mean, no one is doing interviews with us at the moment, but it, it looks like a, a huge area that's being cleaned up, honestly. I mean, there are trucks going by constantly. Um, it's hard to even find a, a quiet spot to do this phone call just because there's so many dump trucks going back and forth, cleaning up barricades, cleaning up trash, cleaning up, um, you know, just all of the, the sort of self-made structures that were put up here. There, I mean, people were using furniture, couches, large pieces of plywood to kind of create their own little walls, their own barriers kind of create their own little city almost the last few weeks. Um, so all of that is being hauled out. There's um, In the park especially, there's a lot of trash, and I've been talking to Seattle Parks and Rec about um, their ongoing efforts all week to go in there and clean the litter up. Um, there's also graffiti being cleaned off outside of the police precinct building. There are a lot of expletives and other things that were graffitied on the side of the building, so in the, they're in the process of getting rid of that as well. Um, there are still um, items that, that were put up before the police left that were kind of put up here for safety and protection, like fencing outside the precinct building. Those are being taken out, down now, too. So there are a lot of different things that were put up by both protesters and then by police in the days of conflict that were leading up to the police leaving the precinct and the shop being created. And I played that very short clip of one of the protesters just just before we went to you. Where are they going? I mean, do they face charges for anything at this point or where are they being told to go? Um, I'm, you know, I don't know exactly. I'm trying to figure out following them on social media. I know some of them have talked of going to other precincts, possibly the West Precinct in Seattle. Um, still trying to find that out. Maybe some of them are going in different groups to different locations. Um, it seems to be that the protesters sort of split up into their own factions as well. Many of them last week already, after the first couple of shootings, were saying, okay, we're kind of done here. Maybe it's time to get out. And then others wanted to stay until the bitter end. Um, yesterday or th- early this morning. Um, so, you know, it could be kind of a difference of agreement between them as far as where they're going. Um, they'll have records request out to see how many arrests have been made or are going to be made. But as far as I know, unless somebody was caught in the act of being violent or, you know, vandalizing or committing a clear crime, um, people aren't going to be arrested just for simply being here protesting. It's considered exercising their their rights to free speech. It's, it's going to take some sort of, you know, really strong crime that they're caught committing to get them to be arrested. But, um, you know, even then it's hard to say because there, there really wasn't a police presence here for the last three weeks. Um, it's actually very, um, very kind of weird to, to see police here um, because I got so used to to seeing no one in uniform in this entire area for for so many weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just bizarre to th- to think about that and to see some of the pictures and the footage uh, coming out of there. Uh, do you get any sense on like you said people are now being allowed people who live in that region, that area and have businesses there are being allowed back in. Do you get any sense or are they going to be able to to open up again or or get things back looking at all like it did before? Yeah, I mean, I just I just saw a woman get let through the barrier to go to a hair salon in here. She was going to a hair appointment. So it, it just seemed like, you know, for the businesses, it's still business as usual. And they have been operating the last few weeks. Um, it, um, I mean, with COVID, obviously, you know, there, it's a lot more um, takeaway food or um, curbside pickup for stores. You know, not a lot of businesses just have 
have their businesses open as normal anyway, but they have been open the past few weeks. Um, some of them that I've talked to said that they didn't have much of a problem with what was going on. Others said that they did feel a little bit nervous. Kind of depends who you talk to. But um, as far as I know, the, the police right now are not inhibiting um, them doing business. Uh, it's just that you're only allowed into the roped off zone if you have specifically, like if you have a hair appointment at the salon or if you're going to a restaurant to pick up food, it's, you have to have a specific reason, but, um, but certainly they're allowing the businesses to, to continue operating. They're not stopping that. All right. Well, Nicole, I know it's been a very busy day for you. So thank you so much for taking a bit of time to bring us up to date on this. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me on.